Welcome to the Ultra Working Podcast. Sebastian Marshall and Chris Natter are here today. Greetings, Chris. And we're going to talk about a research paper, Triggering and Maintaining Interest in Early Phases of Interest Development by Renninger et al. Um, This is really neat. Um, This is a really neat paper. Uh, To 8020 for people from the abstract, it says that triggering interest which is a psychological state, the way they define it, the, intro, the initiation of the psychological state of interest can occur in both earlier and later phases of interest development. It's like a whole research field. Um, however, in this study, we focus on this process in earlier phases of interest development. So when somebody first gets interested in a topic or not, findings from a study of the activity of eight black inner city middle school age participants in an out of school biology workshop are described. So, you know, Chris, before we get into it, I adore this paper. There's a lot of stuff going on. I love how they, they just dove in. They tried to understand these kids and what really got them very interested um, in different topics in biology. So there was some hands-on stuff. There was some class learning. There was some discussions. And, you know, it's N equals eight. There's only eight mm-hmm. participants, Right. But they're not claiming they got a grand unified theory of anything. They just got a lot of observations and then a little bit of very reasonable. Maybe this means that. And they looked at what things generated a fleeting interest where you're like, oh, this is kind of interesting. But then it faded. And what generated a long term interest? I think this is really, really, really cool. Um, And, you know, when we talked about we we knew we wanted to explore this paper together and we talked about it, we said, hey, there's so many angles we could take on. It's a really interesting paper. We'll link it in the the description of the show. we said, hey, this is maybe the most practical, there's all kinds of practical applications if you're in pedagogy, if you're a teacher, if you're a team leader, but maybe a very interesting one would be getting into, if you know you want to study a topic or engage with a topic, you intellectually know that the topic might be important, right? Then how do you approach the the first moves there to get really fired up about it, especially if it's a topic that's not super interesting. So if like taxation is not super interesting to you, yeah. what activities could you do? early on um, to get going. So I think this is gonna be really cool. I think it's really exciting. And, um, you know, to just just to dive into it, um, like, let's, let's just like not bury the lead. Let's get right into it. They found that different activities resonated with different personalities of people in terms of like what got people fired up to get very engaged with the subject and wanna learn it. Right, yeah, there were, a few things. For me, this was a really new topic. You sent me this paper. I, I started reading into it. I got really fired up, actually. I wanted to like read some of the references uh, because I'd never thought about a topic of interest in that, in that level. So first of all, like thinking about um, your level of interest as, a, as something that you have an active control over, that you shouldn't just necessarily um, take for granted. My interest is whatever it is but that you can actively influence your interest and, and, and try to increase it uh, strategically. I found that really interesting. And then taking into account uh, your specific personal uh, personality traits um, and how those will have an in- impact on what triggers specifically work for you. I found that very interesting as well. And I think there are some yeah ways we can turn this into, into actionable um, um knowledge that we can use uh, if, if ever, you know, we want to study something or someone wants to study a topic and um, how we can, you know, systematically um, use the findings of this paper. 
to increase his interest and therefore his uh, learning progress and enjoyment. Yeah, so you know, in, in the very you know very early on in the paper, in table one, they talked about potential triggers. And they had one is affect. Affect is like a fancy term for uh, emotional charge, right? Working definition: heightened emotions that emerge during activity, right? right? Next one: autonomy. You know, uh, self-directed. Um, you get to do it on yourself. Another one: challenge. Another one: character identification. Seeing oneself as a scientist or other relevant character. Um, group work is on there, hands-on activities are on there, novelty is on there, personal relevance uh, is on there. Um, and, and you know, it was, it was really interesting. Take personal relevance, for, in, for instance, right? Connection between an activity or aspect of an activity and a learner's past experience. So crabs are something that kids are familiar with. They've been to the ocean, they've eaten crabs. And for some of the kids that actually like bridged the gap to being more interested in crabs than maybe, maybe something in marine biology or some such that they had not engaged with. And, and that was like a determining factor for some of the kids in whether they liked a topic and got interested in it. It's, it's incredible to me when you think about it, that, you know, you think about the school system and, you know, maybe all the kids get the same curriculum you know, in a, in a middle school class, but some of them yeah. inadvertently have a personal connection because they went fishing or something. And for those kids, if they have a personality match, it's right. like, then they're very interested in the topic. And then they might be like a marine biologist or conservationist 20 years later without realizing. I mean, this is mind blowing to me. This is like shocking to me right. that these yeah. little yeah, for tiny sure. levers, independently of the actual theoretical interestingness of the space, these little tiny levers determine whether you get interested in a marine biology or any other topic. Um, so yeah, I just I just found this infinitely fascinating. Yeah, it's uh, it absolutely is, and it's a little bit almost uh, shocking to think about how many of the interests that we've developed we might have developed really by sheer accident of the right combination of personal background and, and character traits and and triggers in a certain situation coming together, sparking interest and then uh, maintaining it. And then uh, yeah, eventually, as you said, 20 years later, you're the computer scientist, a marine biologist and an athlete. And you're like, how did this happen? And yeah, it was this, this, this random occurrence potentially. Yeah. So they looked at triggers matching learner characteristics, right? So the first one, I think this is table two, uh, activity level. Right. So some people have like a high activity level. They need to be able to move around, you know, um, you know, yeah. the ability to sit still for long periods of time might be easier or harder. And they, they described one of the kids, T came alive in the woods in a way I hadn't seen from him in the lab. He was very excited and seemed to have more to say. All the boys actually were very into running ahead and looking at things. So they did a walk in the woods um, mm -hmm. and they found for some people that, you know, uh, like, hey, they don't want to sit still. They want to go you know, uh, run around in the forest. They want to like poke stuff, engage with stuff. And super interesting. Once again, if you have like six lessons in the classroom and you're the type of person that likes to move around, that might just like, you might be like, I hate this topic. Yeah. And if one of your first couple of lessons or engagements on a topic is like hands on in the woods, we're looking at some moss, we're looking at some stuff, then you're into the topic. So, so it's the trigger lining up with who you are. Um, did, did any of those in particular stand out to you? Which ones were, were interesting to you to think about? Yeah, what, what is interesting in this context is that, you know, the classroom in many cases is a unified experience 
that will basically um, treat everybody the same. There is not a lot of individuality in, in there. And so if you have someone who's naturally, um, you know, um, well, the opposite of, of uh, having to move is the inability to sit still, I guess. And um, someone like that might, um, the triggers that, that spark his interest will not just not be there. And um, obviously, um, I try to, you know, try to match certain triggers that, that I have or certain character traits that I have and, and try to see, hey, what, what would be an interesting setup for me personally to, um, to spark my interest? Like, what, what um, is the ideal environment? Um, many of these things tend to come in clusters. So um, this is one of the things that they found. Triggers don't happen. Um, by themselves, they usually come with other triggers um, in a group, and, and they found anywhere from, I think, three to nine of those things come together to create a learning experience. Um, I think one of the the ones um, that I liked was openness, which is defined as the desire to um, to to try new things. And um, yeah, generally, I think this is an interesting trait to have. To um, to look at new things that you've never never encountered before and see if there is something to to learn in them, and um, often this this means uh, approaching a topic that you might have a bit of an initial you, you feel uncomfortable until you until you get to know the topic a little bit more specifically. Yeah, I think that's 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 one of the things that I found um, found interesting. Yeah, I also I also related some of these back to how I've done things. So there's a uh, per personality characteristic, learner characteristic, I believe they called it, um, called sociability. Like, how much do you like to to hang out, you know, with other kids and do group stuff? And some of the kids were like all about it. And when they were on self directed, go study go study this textbook on your own. Mm -hmm. They weren't into it, right? In a group setting, they came alive. Other kids are just the opposite. They weren't very sociable. They didn't want to do that, right? You know, and I thought back, uh, you know, I've, I've changed over time, but I thought back to, um, to you know, a couple decades ago. I remember in, uh, especially in college, um, whenever there was like, you know, do a group project to learn teamwork. I did everything I could to get solo. I would be like, hey, you know, I've got extraordinary circumstances right. where like I'd, I'd really drag my team down. You know, I'll take all the burden and the hassle of doing it on my own. I know it'll be a great challenge that these other groups have five people working on it. But for me, you know, I'll take on that burden because I don't want to inconvenience other people. You know, I'm working while I'm studying and I would tell this big story and the professor would be like, okay, like whatever, do it on your own. That's fine. And it would take me way less time. It would take me way less time than meeting and then, then I wouldn't have to deal with somebody right. that like didn't do their piece of it so at the last minute i gotta freaky do this person's work if i want to get a good grade or whatever so and i also just like didn't super dig it do you know what i mean like i, I like to be able to right go at my own pace you know later i became i think more sociable and, and you know in, in college there's a bit of a, a random selection of who you you wind up in a, in a course with as you get to know your yeah. people and you know it's, it's a little different but I, I found that very interesting is that you know, I think it's it's very likely the case that a lot of teachers maybe aren't seeing. I know the best teachers do this, but maybe not all teachers look at, um, you know, what does this particular kid need? Like this kid might really want to be in a group and do some group work. Um, and that really gets them going. And that's a great introduction to a topic. And this other kid really might want to pour through the textbook on their own or really, uh, you know, be very experimental on their own, you know, mixing some chemicals or looking at a, a butterfly or whatever. 
Um, so, you know, I, I think it's potentially really interesting for, for somebody listening to this show to actually sit and think, hey, what are my learning characteristics? And it's, it's kind of hard. It's kind of like weird to, to, to think about and to talk about, you know, it's kind of because it's like, you know, like I like history. I'm trying to remember like what got me going in the history at first. And I like really just don't know. It was so long ago. You know what I mean? Like I've, as long yeah. as I remember, I've been into history, but obviously that's not true, you know? Um, right. So, so I think about that. And hey, yeah, I, how, I've, I'm doing the same thing, trying to like, what am I interested and in? how did I become interested? And, and um, some things just, they clicked for you, but it's probably the concept of something's clicked and, and you got immediately into them. You know, we could probably break it down as the first introduction to the specific field. I came into the setting. There was the right number of kids there. The teacher introduced the topic in this way. I had just done this the week prior. I had seen a movie. I don't know. It could have been a combination of, of all of these things. And all of a sudden, I, in, in the right setting, bam, you're into martial arts or computers or, um, or, or uh, playing baseball. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really highly interesting to think about that. Hmm. You know, now that, now that you mention it, I think potentially another application of this would be, you know, there's fields. You think you look at baseball. There's, there's oftentimes there's subfields within a field, right? So there's the hyper analytical baseball people. It's called sabermetrics. I don't know how that became the name, mm. but I think it's an acronym. Um, the study of baseball, a study for the Association of Baseball Reference, or some, something saber. Um, I think it was a group. But sabermetrics was like analytics in baseball. So instead of just like, you know, instead of the, the traditional just focus on the hand-eye coordination and, you know, rotate through a good swing and hips right. and power and all that sort of stuff, it was like also like, hey, statistically, how do we choose, you know, whether we swing on a given count or not, you know, is the pitcher likely to throw a ball or strike? So incorporating a statistical model in the game of baseball, um, it, basically all the major sports leagues uh, in the United States have adopted this over the last 20 years, but there's a huge resistance to it at first. And you have to wonder, you have to ask, you know, plenty of coaches and general managers and owners and such like, and, and, and many players too, got clued in that this was like a potential source of advantage. If we know that, you know, a given pitcher's always going to throw a ball on a 2-0 count, you know, 95% of the time, we might just like, you know, you know, or an 0-2 count or whatever, we might just not swing and just live with it. You know, if it's, if we got two strikes on yep. us and yep. no balls, but they're like, could throw a ball 95% of the time, we might just live with it if we strike out 5% of the time instead of swinging at a bad pitch off the plate, right? Though it's counterintuitive. It's like not what you're trained to do in baseball it's like you know you read right. and try to look at the ball coming off someone's hand or whatever but it's like hey in this situation i'm just going to take a pitch right um you wonder if some people uh you know some general managers coaches um were like hey go read this research versus other ones like had a group discussion and try to figure it out you know and and you wonder you would imagine that there's probably some professional athletes that the way they were introduced to it or not was their first impression mm. And then that led them to either becoming right. like an, an analytical player or not. Do you know what I mean? You know, we tend to think of ourselves as yeah. like, hey, we are who we are. But I mean, there's plenty of topics that I think about that I'm like, it's surprising that I'm not into this. It would be like predictive that I'd be into this. Right. And there's other things that I'm yeah. into that are like not predictive that I'd be into them. So you think about, 
you know, these learner characteristics interacting with the triggers independently of what the subject material is itself. Obviously, there's a component of the yeah. subject material or whatnot, but the way you're introduced to a topic and engage with it early has a lot apparently to do whether you have no interest, a fleeting interest in it, or generates a sustained interest in the topic. Yeah. And um, I think this is super interesting. I really thought about um, my, my, my school, my, my elementary school specifically, where I really thought like there was um, not enough time was spent on think on, on seeing if on the, um, before like trying to get someone to learn something they're not interested in, how can you first spark interest? And then you will have a, the, the, mm. the gates will be open. You will have a much easier time. Um, and I think when I look back, um, one of the key things that has changed over that over my, my, my development is that I think I now have a much easier time getting interested in topics and developing that. Like I, I look at something that's, that might be challenging and I can sort of get my mind to be interested in the topic. And all of a sudden it stops being super difficult. Now it's like, now I'm interested. I want to do it. Like it's no longer a, um, it's no longer challenging to spend the time versus yeah, getting someone to do a hard thing they're not interested in doing. That's just going to be uh, really, really difficult. And especially for kids, I think it's, it's super interesting. So if, you know, if you're a parent and you're, and you're listening to this and you might be thinking, Hey, my, my kid is not into math. What is my kid like? Is it very sociable? Should I maybe put him in a, you know, in a group setting to learn, to learn this is, uh, does he need some hands-on action? Could I maybe like take him out and be like, I don't know, show him how math connects to physics or something along those lines. Like how can I spark interest in the fields that, um, have not yet been, um, sparked interest in. And I think that, that, that would be really, really, uh, that seems like extremely high, um, reward if it, if done correctly. Yeah. And it seems, it seems like it's entirely possible. Two things just came to mind. I'm um, a book. That's just a wonderful book. It's, it's gotta be a top 10 favorite book. And I've read thousands of books in my life. Um, Eli Goldratt, the goal it's, um, it's about like operations management and industrial engineering. And if you read anything else on the topic, it is dry as freaking dust. You know, it is a lot of charts and equations and a lot of calculus and a lot of statistics um and like very very dense annotated charts and a lot of technical terms right it's it's a uh, uh, i find it interesting anyways but i think most people wouldn't but the goal sold like millions of copies which is bizarre for like a highly technical book um on a very technical field that probably the vast majority of people would regard as pretty dry well the goal is basically an industrial engineering textbook except it's written as a novel it's written as a novel mm. It's right. written as a novel. The main character gets promoted to take over like a failing factory and they can't figure out why their batches and loads and stuff don't work. And they abstract away most of the mathematical calculations. They're all there, right? But they're just kind of like, why is this machine breaking down? Oh, well, we have two machines there and only, and we have two here, but the reliability on this one's lower. So it's like a conversation between people working on it together. And there's like an emotional storyline and arc on it too. You know, the thing I didn't like about the book at first, I really didn't like this about the book is there's a subplot in the book. There's a subplot in the book where uh, the, the guy that's running the factory 
his, uh, uh, his marriage is kind of on the fritz. He, he and his wife are, are having some marital problems and they're trying to work that out. And I'm like, this really has like very little to do with the story. At, at various times, it advances the, 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 the main plot of turning the factory around a little bit because, you know, whatever. But it's, it was really extraneous. And, you know, I've reread this book a couple of times and, and maybe three times. Um, and, you know, I kind of came around to it. I kind of warmed up to it because it takes the, you know, industrial engineering, which is, you know, a, a fairly complex. There, there is a lot of ambiguity around the design and stuff. There's a mathematics around it, but implementing it is, is, is no joke. It's industrial engineering is about how factories are lined up and where the machine stations are and how much material has to move around, how you do batches and lots and stuff like that. But like, even when somebody's trying to design and solve those problems, they also have to deal with their personal life. They can't just be in this like rarefied air of like theoretical industrial engineering. And so, so reading about this guy who's trying to solve a factory, it has a little bit of almost like a, like a mystery story. Like, you know, a good mystery story, you're trying to figure out who did it, even while you read it. So as you're reading along and the main character's confused, sometimes like you get the answer a few paragraphs before they do, you make that inferential jump. So like, that's pretty freaking cool. So instead of like, hey, here's a principle and here's a problem set, you're like, they're like, oh no, we can't figure out how to do this. And sometimes it's like really hard and you like won't figure it out unless you're like a super freaking genius. Uh, but like, you're trying to guess reading ahead, almost like a mystery story, a troubleshooting story. And then you're like feeling bad for this guy. Cause you know, like at, at one point his, his like wife, like uh, sees him out with like a colleague and thinks he's dating somebody else. And so she leaves to go like stay with her family. And he's like, no, it's not like that. But you know, but like, she's kind of ticked off about some other stuff anyways. And there's kind of some miscommunication or whatever. Um, and and it's kind of like, you think about that. They took this gold or took this topic that is really genuinely pretty freaking dry for the vast, vast, vast majority of people. And there's emotionality, there's narrative, there's, um, you know, a, a component of you get to try to kind of anticipate and solve the problems. It's narrative driven. Um, and, and, and that probably activated a lot of interest into people getting into industrial engineering. Right. I read a book, uh, I've gone to the hardcore yeah. stuff with the charts and stuff. And it's, I, I don't know, I think probably the goal got me into the topic if I think about it. So clearly that hits a lot yep. of triggers in a way that a standard operations management industrial engineering course might not. Right. And, and maybe it hits additional triggers that just open up, um, you know, keeping the interest of a certain group of people that otherwise maybe would, would check out halfway through. And now they're, you know, just 10, 20 percent more engaged and that keeps them going through the book and um, maybe at no extra cost to the rest of the of the readers. Um, yeah, no, this is really I mean, this is a. This is something, the topic of interest was not something I ever explicitly thought about in this context and um, also never evaluated and not evaluated on, on, a, on any given to topic. I would, wasn't rating like, hey, what's my interest in this actually? And uh, then even less trying to actively increase my level of interest where it is not sufficiently high. There are some topics where you really need a little bit of interest if you want to get good at them because it takes a long time and you need to maintain that that desire to improve. So, um, yeah, bringing this back and, and, and tweaking this this parameter in yourself, I think, is, is really cool to do. All right, so so we're going to now get into uh, speculating because they were the, this was an N equals 8 study with some middle school kids on a 
you know, they had some flexibility, but a relatively set kind of curriculum. We're talking about how to, uh, uh, you know, bootstrap this as a new capability for a listener of this show to evaluate for themselves. How do I get more interested in a topic? If I intellectually know that I'm kind of intrigued by a topic, but I want to like get into it and I want to be like, have a, like be compelled to do it and really like have it pull me, you know, we want, you know, we want to be able to, to generate that in ourselves. We're speculating. We're now departing from the original research paper. So, you know, uh, caveat emptor buyer beware and all that. Right. We're just, we're just thinking we're speculating here. Um, how, how might somebody inventory how they get interested in stuff and operationalize it somehow? I don't even know the right question, but like, how does somebody take yeah. this theory, which is really quite interesting and then like actually do some stuff with it to, to, to kind of fan the flames of interest when they want to. All right. That's um, yeah. So uh, there was one point that I, I found it inter- interesting. It stood out to me was that, um, there was a an element of uh, of compensation. So, for example, there is this personality trait called conscientiousness, and the ability to self regulate. And and some people can just sit down, no matter what it is, that are very conscientious, and they can just sit down and do the thing that they need to do. And their interest doesn't really matter to just get them to do the the activity. Um, when conscientiousness isn't you know at like a hundred then interest can sort of take over. And uh, even if your ability to self-regulate is not at, a, at the highest it could be, if you inc- like introduce interest to this equation, then it doesn't matter and you will still be able to maintain um, you know, the, the learning and, and work process on, on the topic. Um, so I think the, the, to the question, it's really relevant or it's important to understand yourself know your own characteristics, your, your so-called learner characteristics. And some of the, the ones that they identified was, hey, how is my activity level? Can I sit still or do I have to move? What is my awareness? Like, how do I, how aware am I of my past experiences and, and how everything connects to me? Um, your level of emotionality, your independence, your general mood, your openness, your reactivity, and your sociability. Those were the seven learning characteristics that they studied. And um, once you know where you um, where you stand on these and, and how you know you interact with them, then um, you can look at the the specific triggers that work the most reliably for your personality um, traits. And from the from those, then you can. You can create situations where um, the right triggers for you are present uh, in the right combination, and uh, you know statistically increase your your chance to trigger interest and man- and maintain it. Yeah, that's that's super interesting. You know, an example that comes to mind that's really interesting, right? Is is I like poetry a little bit. I've written some poetry in my life, right? And I think most people think of poetry as a very solo activity. But, you know, when poetry was more popular, um, and I believe this happened in Europe and in, in, in Asia, I know, I know this happened in Japan, I know this happened in continental Europe to some extent, I presume it happened in a lot of places. Um, they would have these kind of poetry, like competition is, is the wrong word, 
Yeah, I just watched a Korean film um, where this happened, where like to see if a student was good at like understanding government and had good verbal skill, somebody would have like two lines of a poem and then you do the next two lines of poem and then they would do the next two lines of a poem. And then at the end of it, all the other kind of aristocrats or bureaucrats that were around, bureaucrats and the powerful bureaucrats sense, you know, right, not like the modern sense. Uh, they would like evaluate who did the better and then they'd get a toast or a prize or something. So, so you would see that, you know, normally poetry, you think of it as a very solo activity and you think of it as a long sitting, still concentrating activity, but that's more of a charged, sociable, fast moving, competitive activity. Somebody throws out two lines, you know, um, right. when the harvest is good, there is extra grain, you know what I mean? And then you're like, okay, what do you say? So, so let us celebrate or like, so let us prepare for bad times. Like what is the next line of the poem? And that both expresses whatever your theory of government um, or whatever. So I, I know I just watched a movie about this happening in Korea um, and it's happened in Japan. This happened in continental Europe that takes poetry from a solo sit still activity to a more dynamic sociable activity. Right. And, and potentially the other way around, um, there was this wonderful video and I, I, I wish I, this just came to mind. There's this wonderful video of like girl learns how to dance in 300 days or something like that. Have you, have you seen this? It's, mm. it's like really awesome. I gotta, I gotta find it. Seen and, some of these. Um, Not, yeah. Yeah. This lady was super cool. She was, in, she was in San Francisco. She was in tech and uh, she just mm. shot um, 10 seconds of her trying to dance every day and, uh, you know, and it showed day one, day two, day three. It was like, like, a, like a time lapse, right? And like she went from like very awkward and like like no, nobody would look at that and say that's good dancing. I know we're all like in a kind, nice world where like everybody's great, but like it was, you know, it was not, it was not uh, aesthetically, uh, rhythmically, whatever, like whatever the standards of dance are. It wasn't that. And after three days, she was freaky killer she was she was wow. she was the uh, the kinesthetic control the movement the rhythm the the, the artistic uh, expression yeah. whatever it was incredible yeah. right but you think about that right? right most people learn to dance most people learn to dance in a sociable setting right this yeah. was right. somebody that probably freaking works at one of the tech companies like doing some some engineering or some tactical stuff filming themselves like a scientist and then studying the film in an incremental practice session for five or 10 minutes every day. And she got really, really good. I, I can't speak to her. I don't know her personality or very much about her, but uh, you know, it's, yeah. it, that's the type of thing where that takes an activity that would be a sociable activity and turns it into right. a deliberate practice can do it on your own activity. So I find that very yeah. interesting, taking a solo activity like poetry, making it a group activity, taking a, mm -hmm. um, a group mm -hmm. activity like dance, making it into a solo activity that is really cool um yeah that's really really interesting here are some like i might you know read out one of the examples that they give in the in the in the study and to show you so the, the, yeah the listener here um how how these triggers come together so for example if you're if you're a learner that's high in conscientiousness and planfulness then autonomy and challenge trigger interest that is maintained if you're someone who's very emotional, emotionality, that's your ability to become immersed in an activity, then you want to look for triggers that include affect, 
character identification and ownership. And there is a whole list of these combinations where you basically go from, hey, I got this personality trait, so I want to have these one, two, three things triggered when, when creating interest. And uh, yeah, really interesting. And, and in this scenario, maybe the, the, the lady was um, maybe analytical and like, you know, instead of being in a social setting, she got really, um, really interested by, by seeing the steady progression or maybe, you know, I don't know, making some, some, some notes on, on, on her, her maybe rating herself on her, I don't know, um, you know, movement fluid, fluidness. And, and things of that nature. So yeah, super, super cool yeah. stuff. Yeah, that is, that is really interesting. And so, I mean, tying it all together, it would seem to me that probably people would do well to create a good model of themselves and to own that, you know, people get into so much trouble because of wishful thinking. They're just like, I just got to push harder yeah. or whatever. Right. Yeah. You know, you know, funnel that occurs to me actually, and then we shouldn't, let this one go. You know, um, I, I know a lot of people in Chicago um, and, and I used to, to hang out in Hyde Park, which is Chicago. And that's also around where, where Barack Obama uh, was, was a legislator before he was president. And, um, and I know some people that worked on, on President Obama's campaign. These, there, there are some people that like, I was shocked that they got into like deep numbers and analysis and like, you know, like the analytics mm. of like website stuff and like deep like on like voter right. registration and drives and they were doing like math and statistics and i'm like you hate stuff like that and it's like hey that's what we needed at the campaign office and you know so you think about it where where instead of like studying it in a book context or just taking a course on it or whatever this was like connected to something they really believed in there was a it was like a volunteer high camaraderie setting there's other people around so you're learning it together and then there's uh those those things you mentioned about uh you know the emotional component the character identification component and all of, all of those sorts of things yeah. and like that bootstrapped yeah. an interest um in these very technical analytical fields that otherwise I, like i was surprised with you know some people like yeah okay totally makes sense you got a you know a cs background you're doing doing you know, doing computer stuff like that totally makes sense. But there's some people that were like very, right. you know, very more, more of the narrative side of politics, ethical, moral thinking, you know, uh, reasoning, verbal, like not quantitative, who got into the quantitative stuff in associable uh, emotionality in a neutral sense. You're using like a scientific term and then, and you know, to something where you, you relate and you identify. So that's also very interesting what you said, where if somebody has a high planfulness, but I love freaking scientists taking like <laughs> words and planfulness. If your planfulness and your conscientiousness is high, then more challenge is good for you. But you got to know yourself. Right. If you're like not the most planful person or not the most conscientious person, then being in a group setting, a sociable setting, emotional setting might be the trick for you or whatever else. So yeah, I think over time, people just introspecting a little bit and saying, hey, like what's worked for me in the past? Maybe um, asking other people, you know, if you had a good uh, mentor or a teacher or a sports coach or like a good friend that's seen you learn some stuff, sometimes hard to evaluate yourself to try to get your learner characteristics down um, and then just mm -hmm. design that into the early phases of when you're getting into something. At the very least, it'll make it easier and more enjoyable um, and it might make all the difference. So, yeah, I think this is quite, quite right. potentially powerful stuff and interesting kind of vein that we, 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 we to, to be mined out more we're really just scratching the surface here do you have any recommendations for 
maybe a tool that people could use to learn more about themselves and their their personal characteristics? <sighs> I mean, I feel like the people that are into those things already have them. There's so many different personality models and, and psychometrics and stuff like that. And there's stuff that's like really complex that's good. And there's stuff that's like simple and garbage. So like that sucks. Right. You know what I mean? Like, right. My, my favorite right now, my favorite general recommendation is Ray Dalio put out principles. You, uh, you, Y O U principles, you.com. It's a looks pretty rigorously grounded. I didn't get deep under the hood, but it's a, it's a, it's a personality uh, assessment that it looks like it was pretty, at least in English. Um, it looks like it was, it was pretty well put together. They have translations, but I didn't review any of the foreign ones. Um, that will give you some scores on things like, and it's, it's funny. He's got some funny categories, like your humor level. And like, I scored super low in humor, which was like, which cracked me up. I don't know. Maybe like, well, I'm a serious guy or whatever. Um, I really like it because he has these, he, he really works hard. Uh, he and the, the, the people that he designed it with worked hard to, um, separate out things that are adjacent to each other. So I scored in the single digits on sympathy. Like I'm very unsympathetic. Like if somebody's like crying and getting upset, I'm not like, oh no, right? But I scored in the high 90s percentile, I think 99 on helpfulness. So like I want to help people, but I like I'm not going to cry with you and I'm like like, right. like let's stop crying and solve the problem. So I've sometimes I've rubbed people the wrong way because right. of that. But when it's like actually a freaking jam, like like when someone's in trouble, like and like yeah. my friends in trouble, they yeah. give me a call because like I'm going to be cool and like we're going to solve the freaking problem. So that's that's something I like about Dalio's is that you know um, you know if someone's in distress, do you want to help them? Is is actually somewhat of a bad question because it's you know you could score that. There's two there's two different variables there. One is the desire to help, and the other one is does the distress motivate you. Right. Or, or do you have the sympathy mm. element? So, so a lot of things mm. don't, don't kind of yeah. disentangle those. So I like principles. You, I think it's really quite good. It might be worth doing just a show about that and talking about that and talking about our results sometime. Right. But yeah, I think yeah. that'd be probably pretty, pretty good jumping off place. I think that's the best off the shelf thing and it's, and it's free for individuals. So principles, Perfect. I think that's a great starting off point. As you said, anything that we've missed. I don't think so. I mean, a million things, right? You could go forever on this. And, you know, we're just scratching the surface, but I think the people who listen to the Ultra podcast want to think and apply on their own. They're people that are into peak performance. So, yeah, I think starting to build a model for yourself of what are your learner characteristics and then looking to set up and design and, and choose activities that, that hit those characteristics for yourself. And then, of course, if you're a teacher or a parent or a mentor or a team leader, of course, thinking about these characteristics for other people, it seems like a fruitful thing. I think we only scratched the surface, but people could check out the paper. We'll link it in the description. And yeah, that was really fun. Thank you for, uh, for exploring that together, Chris. Yeah. Thank you. It was uh, really, and thank you for sending me the paper. I, I really enjoyed diving into it and, and I became interested in the topic of interest. All right. Well, all right. So also a shout out to uh, doctors Renninger, Bachrock and Heidi. I uh, hope I pronounced their, their surnames correctly there. So thanks to them, too. They, they, they did a very lovely paper. It was a really cool study. So, all right. As always, dear listener, thank you for listening to the Ultra Rookie Podcast. Hey, give this some thought. I know sometimes you're like, you know, in the gym, you're busy or whatever. At the, Chris and I are of the opinion that this might be a very high value thing to reflect on your learner characteristics and design the activities around that. So give that a shot. Um, think about it. I think there's potentially quite a bit of leverage here, like quite inexpensively. 
uh, for one's life. So um, as always, thank you for listening. Be well.